Good morning, and let's join together in God's Word in John chapter 12. If you'd take your Bibles and join me there, you can follow along as I read this fresh new chapter in our study of John's Gospel. John chapter 12, beginning verse 1. Jesus, therefore six days before the Passover came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume, of pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box and used to pilfer what was put into it. And therefore Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Father God, as we come to this part of our worship time, our praise, our honor, We express our gratitude to you, even in the study of your word. We thank you for the written word that lays out the gospel of your redemption, the gospel of your grace, that calls us to faith and repentance in your son, and gives to us such a beautiful picture of that son and what he accomplished on a cross for us. We thank you for the written word. We thank you as well for the spirit of Christ that opens up our minds and hearts to receive that gospel word and to understand it, and more than that, enables us to apply it to our lives, sanctifying us for the glory of our Father in heaven, for you, Father, and that we might be more like your Son. We thank you for the church and the time that we are gathered here in worship of you. This gathering is your organization, it is your plan, And it is your purpose and intent to grow your church, to grow your people through the gathering together, the gathering that we're doing here this morning. So now we appeal to you, Father, would you have your good and perfect work on our lives? Would you find us humble and submissive under your directing, leading, sanctifying hand this morning? Grant me the special privilege to speak clearly and truthfully on the things from your word. And I pray that you would open our spiritual ears and hearts to hear, receive, and to love you for what you've given to us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. In the back of your note sheet, since we just sang that last song, and I hope you would just reflect on the words that you just sang in worship to the Lord in that last song. But there's a quote on the back of the note sheet I've decided to start with this morning because of what we just sang. This is what Arthur Pink wrote. This is the marvel of grace. Redemption brings a sinner into the presence of the Lord, not as a trembling culprit, 
but as one who is at perfect ease in that presence, yea, as a joyful worshiper. That's the joy that you and I have this morning because of Christ, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And we would say here at the beginning, worthy is the Lamb. That's the focus of attention that we're going to draw from John chapter 12 this morning. In our opening scripture reading, we heard those words of the Apostle John from Revelation chapter 5 as he's describing to the churches the beauty of the Savior enthroned in the heavens. And all the voices of heaven are given honor and glory to Jesus Christ. They're loudly singing, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The Son of God is the one that is seated on the throne of heaven in that display. And he's ruling over the universe. And remember, he holds in his hand a book or a scroll. And some have regarded that book or scroll as the title deed to the universe, the title deed even to the earth itself. And who is worthy to open up that title deed? It is the Lamb of God. And in that description, the opening up of that book is the opening up of the judgments of Christ against the rebellion and the unrighteousness of this world. And his intention in bringing these judgments is to reclaim the universe, the world, for himself. It is his. He will redeem it to himself. And that redemption, did it not, begin at the cross on Calvary. That's where that redemption began. And so all of heaven is looking at Jesus in this position, this sovereign, ruling, redemptive position. And they're crying out, worthy is the lamb that was slain. John chapter 12 begins the final week of Jesus Christ on his journey to Calvary where he was slain for the sins of his people. John writes that it's the sixth day now before Passover where Jesus draws near to Jerusalem, stopping at Bethany just a few miles to the east of the capital city. And there a special memorial dinner is given in the Lord's honor. And unknown to most of the guests at that banquet supper, Jesus was then anointed by Mary for his burial, anointed for his death, giving honor to the lamb who is about to be slain. And it is of note that we do not read in God's word that after Jesus Christ died, there was a special memorial service. In fact, the memorial service that we might have for a loved one may not necessarily be what the Hebrews did back then for those that they loved who had died. But if we recount the story of Christ's execution, his burial, his resurrection, there wasn't a lot of time for memorial service, and the circumstances were not very good for it either, because where were all the loved ones of Christ? They were hiding. They had fled. They had disappeared. We give honor to our loved ones who have died because they held a special place in our lives, but the Savior is worthy to receive far more honor and glory than any man because he is the Son of God and because he, as the Son of God, was chosen by God to be the lamb, lamb that would be slain for our sins and for our salvation. At the very least, Jesus recognizes Mary's actions in this light. He views her expression of love as a memorial to his coming death and burial. And in commending her, her compassion her memorial to Christ, 
Jesus affirms for us the character of honoring the, God, the Son of God. How do we honor God? How do we honor the Lord? Well, very often we regulate our activities. We'll go to church, we'll read our Bibles, we'll do family devotions, we'll keep ourselves away from the, the obvious worldly vices and sins. And that's right that we do those things. But what about the matters of the heart? As we mentioned last week, doctrine and theology must be applied first and foremost to the inner man. We learn what it means to honor the Lord from his word. So we're going to look at the Savior. How do we honor God? We'll look at Jesus and we'll learn from him. This is how we honor the Lord God. But we also will look at those who are looking at the Savior. And in this case, it's Mary that we're going to look to. And we're going to look to Mary to learn how to honor the Lord because the Lord himself commended her honor. He commended this memorial. So much of our study is going to be focusing on Mary for obvious reasons. But that's not where we're going to begin. And you will notice on your note sheets that we're doing a lot of application during and throughout this message, not necessarily at the end with summary points as I would normally do. So it's going to keep us a little bit maybe on, on our toes more. But we're going to look for that application as we move through this very critical subject of honoring Jesus Christ. Again, looking to that future day when we're all going to be gathered in his presence. And we will be crying out with all the voices of heaven. Worthy is the lamb that was slain for my sin. We begin with the courage to bring honor to the Lamb of God. The courage. Our passage opens in chapter 12, verse 1. After several weeks have passed between where we left Jesus and the 12 disciples in chapter 11. You remember Jesus and the 12 had retreated to a quiet little village 15 miles north of Jerusalem, the town of Ephraim. And Jesus had re retreated there to wait until the appropriate time for his own sacrifice. And you can imagine the Sanhedrin, we left them off in the 11th chapter, how they might have been speculating Jesus running away. How cowardly that might have looked to them. We're executing our power and authority. We're demanding that people report the whereabouts of Jesus because we intend to kill him, to save the nation, to save the temple, to save the national identity of the Jewish people. We're willing to kill that man. Jesus gets winds of it, gets wind of that. And he tucks his tail in between his legs and he runs away. That's how they would have pictured Jesus Christ. And here in chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus answers the question of those that we read about in verse 56 of chapter 11. They were asking the question, what do you think? Is Jesus is going to hang around for the Passover? He's going to come back for this most critical of feasts? The people asked this question because the Sanhedrin had already ruled that Jesus was to die to save the nation from Rome. In other words, Jesus has got to be silenced so that the nation of Israel and the temple would not be lost to the Jewish people. However, more to the truth, we saw last week that the Sanhedrin was only concerned to not lose their own power, their own influence, their own authority over the people of Israel. They were looking out for themselves. 
And remember, Rome had given this limited authority to the Jewish leaders to govern themselves under their oversight. So the Sanhedrin had legal governmental authority to render these decisions. Now, they couldn't execute Jesus without Roman authority, but the Roman Empire had given to the Sanhedrin and the chief priests and the Pharisees this ruling authority, and this ruling authority determined Jesus is to be reported to us because we're going to seize him. The word was then out on the street, and no doubt it had made its way a couple of miles east of Jerusalem to the little village of Bethany. The people I'm trying to describe here fully understood the order of the authority, the governing authority there in Israel and Jerusalem. So first I want to draw your attention to the courage that we see in Jesus Christ himself. Because what does it say in the very first line of verse 1? It says, Jesus, therefore six days before the Passover, what's the next word? He came. He came. It is not surprising that the people were curious to see if Jesus would in fact show up for the Passover feast. All Jewish men were to come to this because it's the most important of the festivals in the Jewish calendar. But what the Jerusalem citizens did not understand in asking whether or not Jesus would show up is that not only must Jesus show up, he was the main event of the Passover. And the people did not see or understand or discern that. God had appointed Jesus to be the Passover lamb that would be sacrificed for the sins of his people. And this is why we read verse 1, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover came. After leaving the quiet retreat of Ephraim, Jesus and his disciples traveled first to Jericho. And we read in God's word in the Gospels themselves that there at Jericho, Jesus met a little man named Zacchaeus. And he dined with Zacchaeus in his house, a tax collector. On his way out of Jericho, he saw a blind man named Bartimaeus, and he healed him. And from there, they made their way to Jerusalem, stopping first in Bethany, because there Jesus had many loyal and faithful and loving friends. And we're going to see them this morning, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and some others. In Mark's gospel, we read that as Jesus made his way from Jericho towards Jerusalem, stopping first at Bethany, as he's traveling with his disciples, and I'm going to read from Mark chapter 10, verse 33 and 34. This is one of the conversations Jesus had on his way to that particular Passover. Jesus said to his disciples, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death, They will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Notice the specific details. Jesus knows exactly what is going to happen in Jerusalem in just over six days' time. Jesus walked into Bethany, heading towards Jerusalem with a very clear understanding of what lay ahead of him on Passover. And yet he came just the same. And according to chapter 12 and verse 27, you will note the spirit of Jesus. He is already feeling the weight of what he must accomplish. 
his spirit is greatly troubled as he's contemplating what's going to happen in just six days' time. I want you to look at a prophecy, a messianic prophecy with me from Isaiah chapter 50. This is a passage, one particular verse, namely, that has become a favorite of mine because I can picture Jesus on the road from Jericho towards Jerusalem, heading there six days before Passover, and this is what is described of Messiah as he's heading towards that final and ultimate Passover, Isaiah 50. Beginning verse 4, the Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples. Jesus here is speaking. He's talking about himself. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear and I will not be disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me, my cheek to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting, for the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. It is in this passage that Jesus Christ is describing that which he will fulfill on that Passover in Jerusalem. He came to the city in obedience to the Father's will with the full confidence that God the Father will be his strength. God the Father will be his help. And if God determined the cross for his son, and God not only determined it, but he enabled his son To endure that suffering, Jesus Messiah says, I will not be disgraced. I will not be dishonored. Think about Calvary, the trial. What is the theme of the the crucifixion of Jesus? What is the idea behind a Roman cross? Is it not all about shame, humiliation, disgrace? And Jesus says, because this is what my father determined for me, I will not be ashamed. The world can shame me all they want, but I will not be ashamed. They will disgrace me. They will dishonor me, but I will not be disgraced. And notice what Jesus said in response. None of that's going to keep me from going to Jerusalem, but rather I will set my face like what? Flint. What is flint? It's stone. It's a rock. And it speaks of hardness here, a stubborn determination to go through with the suffering and death that was appointed for Jesus to endure. He was fully committed to be the Lamb of God. And the fear, the anguish, the torment, the weight of the suffering that he would endure would not keep him, would not diminish his determination to be sacrificed. So we look at the courage of Jesus to obey the Father's will, This is the Lamb of God that was slain for our sins. Worthy be that Lamb. This stone-like determination by Christ would first honor the God who called His Son to redemption. And second, it would be the courageous act of Jesus for the sake of His people. He, the Lamb, would carry our sins. And this courage in facing the cross, we are to be reminded was for a people in sin, living as enemies to God, rebellious to the ways of God. 
Yet Jesus understood that by his sacrifice, those who were his enemies would be brought into fellowship, friendship with God. That's what Arthur Pink was communicating in that quote that I read at the beginning. Such determination then causes us to look at his people then. This is the courage of Christ. What about the courage of his people? And we're going to draw back now to John chapter 12. Such determination inspired courage in God's people. One author wrote this, and this is um, written out of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 50 by Gary Smith. Listen carefully to this statement. Referring to Christ's commitment that he set his face like flint, this stubborn commitment to God's way must be the perspective of all who truly trust and serve God. For in the end, God never fails. Even though persecution and tribulations may require a person to suffer severely for a while when they are innocent of any wrongdoing. Now, being innocent of every wrongdoing isn't looking at the believer from the world's point of view because they don't see us as innocent. They see us as vile, lacking in love, lacking in grace, closed-minded. The innocence of any wrong that the author speaks of there is that we're living faithfully for the honor and the glory of Christ, and with that will come suffering. Risk is involved. Threat of danger, threat of harm. And when it comes to our story in John chapter 12, there were certain men and women that disobeyed the ruling authorities in Jerusalem and chose not to report the whereabouts of Jesus Christ. Remember the Sanhedrin. They were granted authority by Rome to govern the Jewish community. It was a legitimate authority. But these Jewish leaders abused that authority such that it defied the very honor that Jesus Christ was worthy of. And so these few people decided we're not going to obey the government. We're going to stand opposed in favor of what? Honoring the Lamb of God. We will honor him. This decision could have been a significant decision for these people, bear in mind. Consequences are involved. But they chose to honor the Son of God in defiance to the rulers of Israel. And when Jesus came to Bethany, he and his disciples were first invited into the home of Simon the leper, as we read about in Matthew 26 and Mark 14. This is where this memorial supper took place in the home of Simon the leper. Now, Simon the leper was apparently a man that was healed by Jesus from leprosy. Now, we know he was healed because if he wasn't healed and still an active leper, people weren't going to be in his home. So we're talking about a healed man. But he was still referred to as Simon the leper. And we presume that it was Jesus that healed him because there was no other healing for leprosy. There was no medication. There was no help. And it's Simon the leper here that is noted in the Gospels as the one that's now going to honor the Lord. What do you think has happened here? This is a man that has been healed by the power of Jesus Christ. The authorities have said, seize him, arrest him, we're going to kill him. Simon the leper says, no, I'm going to hold a party for him, and it will be in my home. I will defy the authority to honor the one who will die for my sins, even though Simon the leper did not know what Jesus was yet going to do for him. He did know what Jesus had done for him. And so was true of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. They knew exactly what Jesus had done for that family. 
They had seen Lazarus rise from the dead by the very words of Jesus Christ. And here he comes into their town. What do you think they're going to do? We're going to hold a party for this man. There will be a memorial service. We're going to honor this one. Casting aside their fear of persecution or retribution, these people intended to show their love to Jesus by throwing a dinner party for him. We find Martha again serving. We see Martha serving in Scripture. You go back to Luke chapter 10. Martha is serving. It's what she's good at. It's what she knows. And in Luke chapter 10, she had kind of a sour attitude about it. And Jesus had to reprimand her. Remember, Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, wasn't helping out in the kitchen. Martha didn't like it. She complained, Lord, make her get up and help. And Jesus said, Martha, you're worried about a lot of things, but your sister has chosen the better thing. And that's going to come back into our study this morning. But that's not the case here in John chapter 12. Martha is again serving. And notice she's commended for it. Serving is a good thing. In Luke 10, Jesus did not reprimand her because she was serving, but because of her attitude. Here in John 12, to serve the master, to serve the lamb, it's an honorable thing. Simon the leper, an honorable thing to open his home and host this celebration in honor of Christ because of what he's about to do in six days. Lazarus is seated near Jesus, and you can imagine that. He wants to be close to this man that has raised him from the dead. Now, we have words recorded in the Gospels from Mary and Martha, but we have no recorded words from Lazarus. And I brought this up a couple of weeks ago just as a speculation. I try to imagine what it would have been like for Lazarus to be called out of the grave because he just spent four days in paradise. He's called out of the grave to come back to this world, this broken, sin-filled, sick world. And he's going to have to go through death all over again. Now, I'm not supposing to you that Lazarus was grumbling about being brought back to this world. If anything, he's sitting by the Savior to honor him because he sees the power of God was manifested in this man. He's happy to come and be next to the Savior. No doubt he rejoiced to see his loved ones again. But again, he tasted paradise. He was in glory. So he knows what lays ahead beyond the grave. And when he does die again, he has a clear view of where he's going. Yeah, he's going to sit next to the master. He's going to sit next to the Lamb of God. This is a, a memorial service in honor of him. This is a dinner party to celebrate the glory of a man they've seen the power of God in. They're honoring the Son of God, and we need to apply something here to us as believers. Because these Bethany believers refused to turn Jesus over to the Sanhedrin, who would take the life of the Savior. Instead, they throw a reception to honor Jesus as the resurrection and the life. And what this demonstrates is that these friends of Jesus showed courage to ignore the threats of men in giving honor to the Son of God. Why? Why are they doing this? Why is this taking place? And why is John recording this for the church? And I'm going to answer it this way because the chief priority of every believer is to live for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ because he is worthy. There's going to be risk. 
There's going to be cost for us as believers in this world. But it's going to require courage and determination. Remember Jesus who set his face like flint to come and die for his people. And we can make it personal. My Savior set his face like flint to come and die for me. He is worthy. So you know when we gather here this morning, when sometimes government doesn't approve, we are here because Christ is worthy. And we will honor him first before what government tells us to do. That's why we're here. He is worthy. The application here can't be missed on our part. Oftentimes, we're going to have to dismiss the risks and the possibility of retribution by leaders and government and neighborhoods and family and friend. We may have to suffer the persecution of scorn and shame, but we must be filled with courage to set this priority before us. Every day of our lives, our objective is honor Christ, glorify the Lamb, live for his honor and glory. And among these three courageous ones, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and I guess we have to say Simon the leper, there is Mary that we want to focus on as well. So not only do we see the courage to come and honor and worship the Lamb, but we need to look at the character of what it means to honor the Lamb of God. And this is where Mary comes into full view. In our day and age, it's not hard to picture the differences between these two women, Mary and Martha. Martha is obviously a worker. She knows how to throw together a dinner party very quickly and very well. She knows how to get things done. She's disciplined. She's organized. She's efficient. She's also passionate about serving, and she did it well. Her resentment and the Lord's retribution or the Lord's Uh, correction on that resentment in Luke 10 in no way discredits the benefit or the blessing of a true servant of Jesus Christ. Serving the Lord is an honorable thing. And Martha demonstrates that serving ministry well here in John chapter 12. Mary, on the other hand, we would envision as the more sensitive type. And men, we kind of bristle at that a little bit. She has a kind and compassionate heart She's much more interested in being involved in people's lives than in the mechanical duties of service. Each time we read about Mary and God's word, where do we find her? It's at the feet of Jesus, right? In Luke, she's at the feet of Jesus learning from him. And this is going to be an important detail to consider in just a moment. Listening to the words of Christ. In John chapter 11, Mary falls to the feet of Jesus with a broken heart over her brother's death in a posture of desperation and dependency on the Lord. But here in John chapter 12, Mary kneels down at the feet of Jesus and anoints his feet with a very costly perfume in a display of love for the death that Jesus is about to endure. And the the perfume comes from something that is called, as the scripture says, pure nard. This is mentioned in our text, but it is a rare perfume that was taken from a herb that was harvested out of the Himalayan mountains. So that's a long ways away. And to travel there to this very small area where this herb grew was a difficult journey. Hence, it was a very expensive perfume. And the text notes that for us. 
300 denarii. Well, it's thought of that a denarii was a day's wages in that day for the average citizen. So that's almost a year's worth of wages. Now, I don't know exactly what the average income in America is today, but it's going to be somewhere between sixty-five dollars and $80,000, I think. So think about almost a year's wages being poured out on this man. $50,000 worth? It's like me coming up to somebody that's feeling a little bit chilled, and rather than throwing a blanket over them, I'm going to take out bundles of $50,000 in cash and start build a fire with it and start feeding the fire to make them warm. This is like what Mary is doing here. She's just dumping out 300 denarii worth of perfume, almost a year's worth of wages. And according to both Mark and Matthew, Mary broke the container holding the perfume and began to pour it out on the head of Jesus. And in John, we read that she continues by pouring it out onto his feet as well. Breaking the jar lets us know, I'm not saving this for later. It's all going to be poured out on the Lord. And John recalls it filled the whole house with his fragrance. Then Mary does something very unfitting. She undoes her hair, lets it fall down, and began to use her hair like a washcloth to wash the feet of Jesus. And just because he's Jesus doesn't mean he's got clean feet. Those are feet that just traveled from Jericho. They're dirty feet. In that time, it was very inappropriate for a woman to let her hair down in public. In addition, cleaning feet was the most menial of tasks. And that's why in the next chapter, John 13, Jesus demonstrates his service to us by washing his disciples' feet. This woman lays aside her dignity, her inhibitions to express her heart of love towards Jesus. She pours out a very costly perfume, anointing with Jesus so that she might honor him. Now, Judas takes exception to this, and claiming to care for the poor, he rebukes Mary in front of the whole gathering and asks, why didn't this perfume get sold, the money collected, and we do something practical and useful with it? We take care of the poor. Now, apparently, Judas was well aware of the estimated cost of this Pyrenard since he gave it that value of 300 denarii. And one of the footnotes in my Bible says that's 11 months' worth of wages. John writes this gospel looking back, and he clearly discerns Judas's motive as greed since he would often steal from the money box or the purse which he had charge of. At the time... In John 12, John and the others didn't see it. But here he's writing this gospel record many years as he's an older man. And he's looking back, having watched the whole scene unfold with Judas's portrayal. He knows what's on the heart of Judas. He's a betrayer. So Jesus then turns and speaks in defense of Mary at this point. And it's here that he lets us know that Mary perceived the coming death of the Lord. In verse 7, Jesus says that Mary has kept this for the day of my burial. That burial hadn't happened yet. It's not like a usual memorial service, is it? We do that after somebody dies. Mary initiates it now. This is the time. Mary saw this intimate moment with the Lord's close friends as the time to honor Jesus For his burial. Perhaps she was not certain how things were going to unfold in those next six days. 
But she realized this was the moment, and I can't lose the opportunity. It has to be done now. And Jesus confirms the timing of it. When Judas rebukes, Jesus said, wait a minute. You'll always have the poor to minister to, letting us know that it is indeed the church's ministry to care for the needs of people. You'll always have that. You're not always going to have me at this moment. So he affirmed Mary had chosen the right moment and the right actions. Now was the time to honor his death. And it's in Mary's actions that several significant characteristics of honoring Jesus Christ come to the surface. And I would like to give some attention to the character of worship before you move on, beginning with honor has value. Honor has value. To honor Jesus, Mary gave a very expensive gift. And when you think in terms of Mary's heart in giving this gift, the act itself on Mary's part cost her something. It is assumed that Lazarus, Mary, and Martha were likely fairly well off. But a gift worth nearly a year's wages, that would have been extravagant for even Mary. If Mary was dirt poor and she'd given the two copper coins of the poor widow that we read about in Luke 21, that would have been extravagant giving. Because to Mary in her poverty, those two coins would have been very valuable. The point is not so much the actual dollar amount of the gift, but rather that it cost the giver. To give Christ what is of great value to us shows that we find that he's worthy of even more. We apply this then to our honoring of Christ. When we honor the Lord Jesus Christ in our service to him, in our giving of our offering, in our ministry to the church, in our worship, or in any way, friends, it should cost us something. We should give what is of value to us. Why? Because Jesus is worth more. If we gave to him something that didn't really matter to us, what would that say of our honor towards the Lord, our value placed on the Savior? How would we envision the Lamb of God at that moment? We give what we value because we value Him more. The quality of Mary's honor was that it was worth something to her, and she gave it to the Savior to recognize that He's worth all honor and glory. So honor must have value. Second, honor shows love. It shows love. For Mary to truly honor the Lord, it needed to come from the heart. And I want you to observe, this was no practical gift by Mary. Jesus didn't need to walk around Bethany or to walk around that house smelling like perfume. It simply wasn't practical. It accomplished no practical purpose. And this is exactly where Judas goes, isn't it? We should have taken that money and done something useful. Wouldn't it have been more profitable instead of just dumping it, sell it, take the money, minister to poor people. But this act of Mary had no practical purpose other than to honor the person that was being anointed. This was an expression of her heart. 
Mary was willing to put her own pride and her dignity aside to show reverence to Jesus Christ, using her hair, wiping his feet, even the value of the gift. It's a measure of her love for the Lord. She's not afraid to sacrifice herself to show this love. And the incredible monetary worth of this gift only reflected the greater worth that she found in Jesus Christ. And it's noteworthy here that she broke the container to anoint the Lord, telling us she had no intention of saving it or saving part of it for later. She wanted to pour it all on the Lord. This is how I feel about the Savior. Arthur Pink, again writing on the Gospel of John, he wrote of Mary's anointing and Judas's objection. Listen to his words. Love is never wasted. Generosity is never wasted. Sacrifice is never wasted. Love esteems its costliest nard, all inferior to his, Christ's worth. Love cannot give too much. And where it is given out of love to Christ, we cannot give too much for his servants and his people. We again take this and we apply it to our lives. How much do we give? How much do we serve? How much do we worship? How much do we honor the Lord? I give here, I give there, but I got my own things to take care of. Truly honoring Jesus Christ for who he is must be activated by a heart that loves and adores him. And as Pink pointed out in that quote, we show our love and honor to the Savior even as we're giving to the church. We're serving other people. We're ministering and serving the needs of Christ's redeemed family. He was the lamb that shed his blood for the sins of his people. How do we treat the people that he redeemed? How do we serve them? How do we care for them? And the church is his mechanism, the Lord's mechanism, to minister to one another. This is how we honor him. Mary exemplifies this heart of love for the Lord, and I cannot think that our honoring Jesus Christ means anything to him at all if it's just an outward action or just an outward show, and it doesn't come from a heart that truly loves the Savior. Our world is filled with religion, It is filled with religious people, and religious people are often very zealous about doing religious things, religious stuff. And they will claim we're doing this religious stuff to honor God. Yet none can honor God who does not love and honor his son. It is Mary's love for Jesus that compels her to anoint him in honor of his burial. And this brings us to the third character that I see in Mary and perhaps the most significant or the most profound, honor has understanding. It has understanding. I think this is the most unique thing about Mary's anointing of Jesus, and it is confirmed by Jesus himself here. Mary did this, Jesus said, as a memorial to his day of burial, which was to come. What does that tell you about Mary? She understood Jesus was about to die. And the others in that room didn't get it. I quoted you from Mark 10, the travel between Jericho and Bethany. Jesus is describing to his disciples in detail. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen step by step. They didn't get it. But who did? Mary. She understood why she is honoring the Lord. And Jesus acknowledges that here in John chapter 12. It means that Mary actually listened to Jesus when Jesus spoke. 
and especially as he spoke of his own death. I think many of us have often observed that women generally have a keener sense of things that are unspoken. And I think God gave this kind of intuition to women, and that's why it makes them good mommies. They know when things are going on with their children, even when those things aren't said. And there are some women that I know that have a very keen, discerning alertness when things aren't right. My wife and I, Debbie, and I have talked about my mom being that way. She has Alzheimer's now, so she doesn't remember well. But as we go in and visit with her, if there's something in the air, she knows it right away, and she's wanting to know what's going on. What are you talking about? What's wrong? Tomorrow we're going to meet with my mom, and we're going to have to tell her dad has passed away. My guess is she's going to know something's up. There's some women that are very keen on that. We often refer to it as women's intuition, and I think Mary was intuitive, very keen. That's a sensitive nature that's coming out. But it was not just her keen sense of womanly intuition here. Mary sat at the feet of Jesus, and she actually listened and heard what he was saying. She not only heard his words, she could hear his heart or the very meaning of his words. And this has very much to do with the timing of this anointing taking place six days before the death and burial of Christ. She not only is sensing the approaching death of the Lord, but she felt this is the time I must honor him. And she may not even know how to explain it. But as we watch that six days unfold, Passion Week unfold, what takes place? But all of Jerusalem turns against Jesus Christ. The Lord's own disciples run and hide from Jesus Christ. This was the time to honor the death of the Lord because things are about to get very unsettled and very crazy. Mary knows this. She senses this. Why? Because this is a woman woman that listened to the Lord. She heard what the Savior had said. She believed what Jesus said when he said, I'm going to die for the sins of my people. As a result, she took the opportunity to honor him when the moment was right. And in this, Mary teaches us, again, going to application, to be attentive, not only to the words of Jesus, but the spirit of his words. And this comes from being good listeners, good students of Jesus, where we sit at his feet, we take in his heart as well as his words. We learn of Jesus Christ from his word. And as we do, we have a greater reverence and a greater love for him, a greater desire to honor him with our lives. We can read scripture out of a sense of duty. We can come to church out of a sense of duty. We can do a lot of external moral things out of a sense of obligation. But truly learning of the Lord and understanding who he is is going to affect a spiritual change within the true believer that will result in a life that lives for his honor and glory. We're going to live before the world, live before our homes, our families, our marriages, our communities, our places of work. We're going to live in a way that honors Jesus Christ for who he is. What Mary did here, Jesus approved. And in Matthew, we read these words from Jesus that we don't find here in John 12. But Jesus, looking at what Mary had just done with his perfume and her hair, he said, truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the world, whatever is preached, wherever this uh, gospel preaching goes, What this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. 
That's what the Savior thinks of what Mary had done. Friends, this is what we need to replicate in honoring the Lord with our lives. I would like to think, looking at that commendation, that somewhere in my life, Jesus would say that about what I've done. But I'm not sure that I quite measure up to that commendation. Wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in her memory. That's why sometimes we look to the people that are looking to the Savior and we follow in their example. Mary teaches us something of the character of what honoring Christ looks like. This brings us back to our text and perhaps the more negative view because there was a corruption in this story as well, a corruption of honoring Christ. And this is consistent with John's gospel. It is a, in writing this gospel, it is filled with contrasts. Just as we see a dinner party given to honor Christ, in the midst of this dinner party, we see the corruption of honor against him. John has endeavored to present to his readers a true and an inspiring record of God's Son. But he also exposed the mixed responses of belief and unbelief, of light and dark, of love and hate. And in this case, John 11, life-giving. John 12, the intentions of murder. And so also here he shows us honor and dishonor. And the corruption that we see in honoring Christ is first seen in Judas Iscariot, who I've referred to here as the selfish betrayer. The selfish betrayer, because that's how the word of God has described this man. He was looking out for his own selfish interests, and he was already intending, verse 4, to betray Christ. Here he is sitting with the other 12 at a dinner party to honor the Lord. And there's one sitting there that is already cultivating in his heart and mind, how can I betray this one? Jesus knew that Judas was a betrayer from the beginning. But bear in mind, the other 11 did not seem to discern what this man was truly about. Again, John is writing this much or many years later when he's much older. But when he was sitting there in the room with Judas. The other 11 didn't see it. And the fact that the others trusted Judas to keep track of the financial contributions indicates that Judas was probably good with money matters. It's also indicating to us that Judas was probably fairly good at showing himself to be a moral, responsible member of the team. He was good at living in hypocrisy, hypocrisy that was well-masked, and he had gone to great efforts to present himself as an honest man, a man of integrity. And here in John 12, the foul motives of Judas' heart were, were hidden under a false concern for the needs of the poor people. He gives pretense to honoring God by expressing concern for the needy. But under the surface, there is a man that lives for himself. Think about how that might have looked to you and I sitting there with the other 11 and observing Judas. He didn't stand up. At least I don't envision him standing up and just wagging his finger at Mary. I see him kind of pulling back and saying, Oh, Mary, what you've done here is real sweet and special. But his facial expressions, what we call nonverbal communications, they're going to be engaged in this. His words will be very soft and smooth. Out of love for poor people, maybe we should have taken that, sold it, put it in the money box. And I'd have made sure poor people were cared for. In his heart, he's thinking, I'm that poor person. So we see the corruption 
of honoring Christ first in Judas the betrayer. And as is often the case, a selfish man will join with others to bring the greatest profit to himself. Judas had joined on the team three years earlier. And he had high hopes that Jesus would become the king and he'd be one of those top dogs in the governmental position under Messiah. But over those three years, he became more and more disappointed at the direction things were going. And so while he's on this team that he thought would be a real profitable thing for him, here he sees Jesus coming under the threat of the Sanhedrin. This is all coming undone, and hence no more money out of the money box to steal. Where is he going to go next? Well, a selfish man like that's going to join with another team that's going to be more profitable. So he goes to the Sanhedrin. He goes to the Sadducees. Instead of stealing money out of the box, he'll take 30 pieces of silver. That will do. Rejecting the opportunity to honor the Lamb of God who is about to be slain, Judas would sell out the Lord to support slaying the Lamb of God. His concern for money could be given to the poor was false, but he instead accepted money to betray the Savior. Second, the corruption of the religious rulers is noted here in our text. The corruption of the religious rulers. Judas was not alone in corrupting the honor that Jesus was worthy of. We see the chief priests also continuing their plot to kill Jesus, beginning in verse 9. We see the chief priests are conspiring, or they're, they're planning, they're plotting, how can we get rid of Jesus? I know, we've got to get rid of not only the miracle worker, we've got to get rid of the miracle itself. So now they're plotting to kill not only Jesus, but Lazarus as well. Lazarus appears to have become something of a celebrity because according to verse 9, crowds are beginning to come see Jesus is in town and we hear Lazarus is there. Haven't you heard about the miracle? We can go see both. Maybe get some signatures or autographs. And the chief priests, the the rulers, they see this movement of popularity. They say, wow, we've got to get rid of not only Jesus, we've got to get rid of Lazarus. He's the evidence. The response of the chief priests was not only to follow through with the plan of the Sanhedrin to kill Jesus, but now they wanted to kill Lazarus. They wanted to murder him as well. And we observe that John identifies these conspirators as the chief priests. He doesn't mention the Pharisees, notice here. The chief priests. And who are the chief priests? They're part of the Sadducean party, aren't they? These are the men that reject the doctrine of the resurrection of the body from the dead. What is exposed here by John is that these men were prepared to murder Lazarus rather than admit they were wrong. Let's just kill him. Lazarus was clear and undeniable evidence, not only that the resurrection of the body will occur, but that Jesus Christ is the one that can make it happen. So kill them both. And they wouldn't need to change their position. They wouldn't have to admit they were wrong. How characteristic is that? of mankind, and sadly, characteristic of too many within the church community. Even when there is a multitude of biblical voices speaking into a person's life, very often they can fight against the need that they have to admit they are wrong and to repent. And the church of Corinth is a clear testimony to that reality. Paul hammered, he pleaded, he wrote letters 
And what we often discern here is that a refusal to admit wrongdoing and repent of it is highly dishonoring to our Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, when you have a multitude of voices that come and speak into your life as a believer, take the time to listen and to examine so that we do not dishonor Christ. We must be watchful for this dreadful manifestation of sinful pride. The chief priests show us what it means to dishonor the Lamb. And third, I want you to notice in our text what's not in our text. And that is the corruption of the true disciples. And we're going to need to go back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 26. And as I read these verses, take mental note of what Matthew is saying that John did not. Matthew 26. And I'd like to start at verse 6. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial full of very costly perfume. She poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this, and they said, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. Those last couple of sentences, those are the words of Judas, aren't they? But what's different about this text? All the disciples are rebuking Mary. It's not just, as John 12 says, Judas. What does this tell you about this dinner party? What does it tell you about the 11 true disciples of Jesus Christ? Judas was not the only one that was indignant with Mary's memorial to Christ. John lets us know that Judas was the instigator. He's the chief conspirator because he's got betrayal in his heart. But what is troubling here is that Judas was so good at deception that he was able to lure away the friends of Christ to a place that dishonored him. These are men that love Jesus. They confessed that Jesus is Messiah. They knew him to be the Son of God. They're a little bit rough and ignorant at times. But they love the Lord. And notice how the influence of one lured them to, away to a place where it dishonored Christ. They were easily persuaded by Judas, perhaps because of their jealousy towards Mary. Maybe they watched what Mary was doing and they said, why didn't I think of that? Or I should have come up with something better. Perhaps some of them watched Mary and thought, if only I had done that or brought something valuable. And applying this to us, whatever is on the minds of the 11 disciples, the point here is that these men who loved the Lord were persuaded to dishonor him by a man who gave pretense to caring for the ministry, but who was actually motivated by selfish ambition. Judas gave an explanation that denounced the actions of Mary that appeared to be concerned for the poor and the others bought into the deception. And I think this should serve as a warning to all of us that deception abounds even within the church and we can all be deceived. We can all be lured away by it. Further, while this text actually affirms that it is the church's obligation to care for the needs of the people, again, what is our greatest priority? It is honoring Christ, who is alone worthy. Yes, caring for the poor, that's important. Yes, it's a ministry of the church. But our greatest priority is to honor him. And sometimes that has to take the chief position 
given the timing, as we see here in John 12. So we need to be prepared to sacrifice time, sacrifice riches, convenience, energy, and our resources to the Son of God. And heaven is going to cry out with us to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Church, be cautioned. Don't be led away by persuasive words. Our obligation, our priority is to honor the Lamb. Why? Because He, my Savior, was slain for my sin. Father, we thank You for this beautiful portrayal of Your Son's burial given by a woman that was very sensitive and in tune to Your Son's words. Help us to be this kind of people that honors Your Son as He deserved to show Him by our lives, our words, our resources, our time, that He indeed is worthy. Help us, Father, not to be cheap or stingy or reluctant to give. Let us not be persuaded by deception. And heaven forbid that we allow government to tell us when to honor our Savior. We need courage. We need a greater love for Christ. Grow us in that direction so that you see the Summit Park worshipers as those that see your son as worthy of all honor and glory and power and dominion and blessing. And we pray this together in his name. Amen.